said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I because he existed before me. Now see, John the baptizer knew specifics about the Messiah before he was unveiled in his earthly ministry. If you start looking at movies and things like this, it's kind of like, oh, poof, there he is. They didn't know who he was. John didn't know who he was. And they, they make all those arguments. But the scripture says John knew who he was. In John 1, verse 32 to 36, reading on ahead, it says, And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, Jesus. And I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So John was sent to baptize in water, but it was a picture of something that was going to happen. And we know what happened. He says, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. And again the next day, he was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked upon Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So John the baptizer knew who Jesus was. And by the way, the statement, He existed before me, is a reference to his deity because it's clearly pointed out that John is six months older than Jesus is. So John knew who he was. It's not a matter of discovery once he started his ministry. He already knew that his cousin was God in the flesh. And he pointed him out to his disciples. Now John knew that Messiah would be both God and man because <clears throat> that part had not been hidden. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. How could David call him God and he be David's son? That's a question the Lord asked the Pharisees and they had no answer for it. The only answer is he's both God and man at the same time. And see, that, that passage should teach all of us that look at Scripture and go, well, it's either got to be this or it's got to be that. Sometimes it's both. And sometimes that's left out of our reasoning process, and that is a serious mistake. It's taught by the way the Pharisees um, viewed that. He's either got to be God or man, but they never recognized he could be both God and man at the same time. When you have two contradictory statements, seemingly, uh, like you find in Proverbs, and Solomon said, I'm going to teach you the sayings of a wise man how to understand a riddle. He's going to make two statements that seem to be contradictory, yet they're both stated as fact. Now, how do you come to understand them? What does a wise man do? He figures out how they fit together. Both are true but in what regard and in what sense. And so that's the challenge. That's one challenge we find throughout Scripture. <clears throat> so Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, how would, we, how would we celebrate Christmas without this verse? It says, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now just think about that. A child will be born. He'll be called Mighty God, Eternal Father. Now see, a Jew wouldn't call anybody that. 
unless it was inspired of God. They would not call a mere human being God. But it says that's exactly what's going to happen. Isaiah 7, 14, it just said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. And he says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it in justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore and the zeal of the Lord of the armies will accomplish this. That's Isaiah 9, 6. So, <clears throat> Messiah will be both God and man. The fourth point here is Jesus was God who became man and not a man who became God. Now that is a twist that Satan has put on it throughout the centuries. That yes, he was a good man. The occult even claims that Jesus is part of them. That he was a man who finally ascended to Godhood. And that's how they view Jesus. Wrong. He is God and became man, not the other way around. Like some religions, believe can happen through various stages of reincarnation. When you look at religions like Hinduism, Hinduism is an, an evolution to Godhood. Who was the first evolutionist? Satan was. Clearly. Why? He said, I will be like the Most High. He knew he wasn't. But you don't go down to be like the Most High. You have to evolve upward. And Hinduism has picked that up. Buddhism has picked that up to its own degree. <clears throat> Mormonism has picked that up. Actually, through their various celestial uh, planes that happen. But man cannot be reincarnated. There's a passage in Hebrews, I think it's chapter 9, somewhere along in there, it says... It's appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. I got in a... I'm not going to take a long rabbit trail. In high school, I got called to debate um, reincarnation. And it was in a, our debate class. And there was a gal in there who was actually a Buddhist. I didn't know anything about it. I called my pastor and I said, Okay, give me some help here humbled myself in, in my, my thinking and uh, he, he appointed me that passage in Hebrews 9 it's appointed to man once to die not over and over and over again because that's nothing but slavery and I thought okay and we had a debate and it was a spirited debate and all that and her only argument was that that's just a Christian belief and my only argument was so what <laughs> deal with it and the uh, teacher, because it got kind of spirited, called it a draw. So anyway, we'll see how that works out for her. Now, verse 16 says, For of his fullness, his pleroma, which is a word that means the result of filling. Plerao means to fill. Put an M-A on it. On the noun form, you get a result of something. He was filled with the Holy Spirit in full measure. That's who the Lord was. He says, For of His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. So Jesus was fully filled with the Holy Spirit and after He died, was buried and rose again, we get the indwelling of the Spirit. And it's the fullness of Christ 
overflowing into those who have have believed. And grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Now, he's referring to the present indwelling of the Holy Spirit given on the first day of Pentecost after Christ's ascension to heaven. We Christians often speak of the day of Pentecost, but it wasn't the first one that ever happened. first one that ever happened was after the Jews walked out of Egypt and they had a day of Pentecost whenever that, to commemorate the receiving of the law. And so the day of Pentecost was an important day to point to the law itself. Well, on the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection of Christ, we got a new law. And Hebrews 7.12 says, Where there is a change of priesthood, which happened on the first day of Pentecost after the ascension, there of necessity is a change of law. Oh, that's quite, a, quite an important statement. So beyond the grace given in salvation, it says in grace upon grace, is the grace in which we now walk. In verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, the grace and the truth. Definite articles are in there, were realized through Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. So the Mosaic law, as we're told clearly in Galatians 3.24, was a tutor to point out the need for the Messiah. And Jesus the Messiah displayed how love and justice could coexist. Because out of his love comes grace, and out of his justice is still the fact that sins have to be paid for. They can coexist, and they can do so perfectly, and he is the perfect example. Now verse 18 says, No man has seen God at any time. Now, seen is a word, it's important to note the word seen. There's half a dozen words you can, you can use to, to talk about seeing something. Blepo, we frequently mean, and that's just take a, good, take a glance at something. That's just a, a passing glance. Hurao is the word we have. This means to stop and think about it. Take a long look at it. No one has seen God at any time. This adverb... Uh, popate is used six times. It means at any time or ever. It's never happened. The only begotten God, <coughs> monogenes, used nine times, and and uh, you've got those all listed in in your handout. Hebrews 11:17, the term is used of Isaac, and clearly Isaac was a type of of Christ. Uh, different birth, special birth, unique birth, and uh, miraculous birth, if you will, who is in the bosom, uh, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Now, being in the bosom of the Father, it's interestingly called Abraham's bosom. Paradise is what, what it is called. And it's used there in Luke 16. And it's used of John, the apostle, leaning on the Lord's bosom during the Last Supper in John 13, 23. So it's telling us that this is a, the place of dearest relationship. The place of dearest relationship. What is, what is closer? You take someone to your bosom. That's what you're doing. You're, saying, you're important. You mean something to me. I, I love you. I appreciate you. 
That's what it's referring to. He says he has exegeted him. Exegeomai. Uh, word used six times. We get the word exegete from, which means to read out of. To explain is what it means. So, Moses got a glimpse of the Father. You know, and if you're reading this, and I'm reading this, we're all going, Moses sign. First thing we're thinking about. But he got a glimpse of the Father and did not take a long look at him. He just passed by. He got to see the hinder parts, as it says. He just got to, to see the Lord basically walking by and walking away. He got a blepo of the Father. He didn't. The Lord didn't stop and look each other in the eye and they have a conversation. Didn't happen. <clears throat> Jesus was not a new God, but only the only beginning, but the only begetting or manifestation of the flesh of the God. Only begotten, uniquely begotten. Multiple ways have been used to try and translate this word. Monos means only, and the genes is the word it comes from to beget. So, only begotten, the simplest meaning of the word, that's what you have to look at. What? No. Okay, we'll discuss that later. Okay. <clears throat> the only type of Christ. Now, Jesus unfolded the picture of the Father through himself. From Hebrews chapter 1, which says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now look at how it describes him in Hebrews. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So this is simply saying Jesus is God in the flesh. And when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, and he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Because of which of the angels did he ever say, You're my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I'll be a father to him, he'll be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. In fact, we'll get to sing a song about that uh, whenever we get fired up again. Angels from the realms of glory. Yes, indeed. John 14, verse 8 and 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Quite a question he asked to Philip. I am God in the flesh. He knew who he was. He didn't reach suddenly a form of God consciousness. That's what some commentators say. Jesus was out doing his ministry, he started his ministry, and he still didn't quite know who he was. 
I'd argue with that from a lot of different perspectives. Luke chapter 2. He said, I was in my father's house. That's where I was when mom and dad came looking for him. Where were you? I was in my father's house. Why would I be anywhere else? He knew who he was. So the forerunner of the Messiah, John the baptizer, clearly knew his role in the plan of God. Now, the next uh, section is his lineage. His divine flesh, see his divine title, his divine flesh, and his lineage. And here is the part where don't take a nap. So I'm not going to read and exegete every one of these uh, names that go through here. But in Luke 3.23, he began his ministry. Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph. Now we know that he was not actually in the genetic line of Joseph. But this is a list of men and excludes even the notable women like Naomi that we would find within this, this genealogy with famous moms in here. And we go through, this is, this is where uh, Luke 3 is always interesting because uh, this is where most people fall asleep and give up and skip to Revelation when they hit these. But these are, uh, we've studied these in Genesis, Genesis 11, Genesis 5. And you can get some ideas about these guys by looking back through the, the notes of those. I want to make one note here in verse 36. It says, the son of Canaan. Now, Genesis 11:12 does not list him okay, as part of the genealogy. Now, he is only found in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is loaded with information and numbers that occur no place else in any text. So here is Canaan inserted into the uh, antediluvian patriarchs. And people use this to say, even Norman Geisler uses it to say, that there are gaps in these genealogies. Now it shocks me that he would, he would do that because he is an apologist and such a literalist and yes but I take issue with him on that the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament done by the LXX is 70 scholars that supposedly did this and nobody's real sure where they got their manuscripts from to do the translation there are numbers in the Septuagint they're not found anywhere else Canaan is not found there at some point, Canaan got inserted into the genealogy and the error got propagated. Now, there is an ancient old manuscript or two that do not have him listed. Whatever happened here happened early on and it got carried on throughout the church. So there's, this is far from proof because this is an uncertain textual reading when it gets down to it. This is far from uh, proof that uh, there are gaps in the genealogies. But rather further proof that the text used to translate the Septuagint was loaded with errors as it contains things no other ancient manuscripts contain. Septuagint is helpful. The translators, you can look at the Septuagint and go, this is how they understood this Greek word at the time, intertestamental time in between the Testaments. And it helps you understand the usage of the Greek word. So the Septuagint has its place. But stay away from it when it concerns theology. Especially theology that doesn't line up with the rest of scripture. 
Now, Matthew chapter 1, here's another genealogy, because if you go to the New Testament after getting bogged down in Genesis 5 and 10 with those genealogies, you jump to the New Testament, and what do you get hit with? Does the Lord trying to tell us genealogies are important? I think so. (laughs) I think so. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Abraham was born, here's the word ganao, meaning to be born. He says was born Isaac. So this one starts with with Abraham. And it tracks this all the way down. And you'll notice these little, uh, little lines and little phrases that say, all the generations from Abraham to David, this verse 17, are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. Now, from Adam to Abraham, if you want to go back and count those up, was 20 generations. Some of us who are chronology nuts like to count things like this. Now, from the birth of Abraham to the birth of David calculates a generation of 65 years. Okay? 1950 to 1040 B.C. We put dates on these with a pretty good level of accuracy. Now, from David to the dispersion, calculates a generation of 32.4 years. Not nearly as long a generation. From the dispersion to Christ, calculates a generation of 41.8 years. From Adam to Abraham, 20 generations, calculates a generation of 100.5 years. So why do this? Because there are... uh, uh, let's see, from Adam to Christ, let's go all the way, 62. That's a generation of 63.9 years. Remember the number of generations declared in the inspired word of God. See, without th- this declaration says in verse 17, there are 14 generations. There's not a whole bunch of gaps in there and people that are not listed that are in these things. There's 14 generations. That's inspired word of God. So are these chronologies and genealogies literal? I would say that's what the word claims. Okay, so that's where we need to hang our hat, if you will. So biblically, there's no room for any gaps in the genealogies. Now, note that attempts to place a specific number on the length of a generation, like some do to try to calculate the date of the rapture, are not biblical. How long is a generation? The Bible tells us it varies. Okay? That's what it does. And it does it right here. So when we try to say, I know the first thing I heard was uh, back in the 70s, late 70s, a generation is 40 years. Israel became a nation in 1948, 1988 will be the day of the second advent, back seven years off of it. 1981 is the day of the rapture. And that didn't happen. And then they said, well, 50 years, the length of a generation, because a priest had to step down when he hit his 50th birthday in Levitical priesthood and all that. That's the length of a generation. So we got another 10 years of grace. And the next thing you know, how long did David live? 70 years. How long did Solomon live? 70 years. Oh, 70 years is the length of a generation. These are speculations. That's all they are. 
I think the latest one now is 80 as the length of a generation. And guess what? Biblically, it's somewhere between 32 and 100 years. Okay? As defined by the scripture. Okay? Let's leave it at that. Stop trying to date it. And what are you going to do if you do? Are you doing anything? Would you do anything different? We shouldn't be. Should we? We ought to be living every day in the light of the fact that the Lord can blow the trumpet and come back. That's how we should be living. Jesus is the promised seed. He's the promised seed of the woman. All the way back to Adam and Eve. And he's the promised seed of Abraham. That's who he is. Now, <clears throat> we move from here to the calling to write this down, given to Luke. In Luke 1.1, 1, 1, it says that uh, inasmuch as we have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Now, Luke, as we know, was part of the traveling entourage of Paul. He... In, it was investigated and recorded by Luke, who was a physician. So he's one that paid attention to detail. This we can probably tell about him. And we can see from his gospel that that's what he did. And he says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants. Servants means an under rower. Somebody in the belly of the ship that's pulling on the oars, helping the ship go. That's what it means. It's, it's, a, it's a servant. He says, We're eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed down to us. So Luke is functioning like an investigative reporter. One who really does his work and stays away from Twitter and other social media platforms one who really does investigate. I find it interesting, even when we were in high school, our history teachers, right, this is the, this is what you have to do, and you are going to have to investigate it, and you're going to have to make a term report on it. And the one we have, I mentioned before, if you had a misspelled word, he just handed it back to you and didn't grade it. That's what he did. He taught us, this is the way I want the formatting done. I want you to use ibid properly. I want you to use the periods and commas properly. And if the grammar's out of it, I'm not going to even read it. And he would hand it back to us. We learned a lot of things about the importance of detail. Taught us a lot of things about proper way of investigation. You need witnesses. Who, who is there for support? You have some crazy idea that has no support to it. Luke is saying, I've approached this as an investigative reporter. And what he's going to present, people can check. Now, he says, and handed them down to us. He's going to interview some people who actually saw the events. He's going to travel with Paul who, and, and meet with other people who were changed by the events. So that's who Luke was. Verse 3, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully. Parakothuleo, Lutheo. 
means having followed along near to. That's the word translated investigated. He said, I got close to it. From the beginning, he was a believer early on, to write, grapho, write it down, write it out for you. And then this last word, in consecutive order. That's the important verse. Akribos is the word used four times, means perfectly, plus katheses, used five times, which means consecutive or following after. Luke is seeking to give a sequential account of the events that transpired. The others don't make that claim. Matthew, Mark, and John don't make that claim. So the, the study that we have on the website about the life of Christ, Luke is the foundation. And everything else is connected into Luke because it takes Matthew, Mark, and John and it inserts them appropriately uh, as well as I could do it, uh, but inserts them into the account. So the life of Christ is a chronological unveiling of what happened in year one, two, three, and four and the final week. That's what it's designed to be. Why? Because Luke gave us the outline. So everything needs to fit into Luke. In verse 4, so that you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Now, these four verses have been recognized for centuries as classical Greek instead of the usual koine. There's something different about these verses. This would be used to get the reader's attention that this is designed to be a scholarly work. Now, when he moves on from this, he's going to be quoting a lot of things in Koine the way that he heard it. But he's telling people up front in these four verses, this is intended to be a scholarly work. And it's intended to put the events of the life of Christ in chronological order. Now, the uh, a new king is to be worshipped. And we move here into point B of the outline. It's an A and B outline with a lot of subpoints in it. In verse... Five of Luke. He says, In the days of Herod. Now, Herod Antipas ruled from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. He was another of Herod the Great's sons. He began as a tetrarch over Galilee and Perea. He was the, ru- uh, he was the ruling Herod during Jesus' life and ministry. Herod Antipas was first married to the daughter of Aretas, an Arabian king of Petra. And he became infatuated with Herodias, the wife of his half-brother, Philip I. So these two eloped together, although both were married at the time. This scandalous affair was condemned severely by John the Baptizer. He got all, all over him for that. King of Judea, and there was a certain priest named Zacharias, of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous. This is the chaos. They were both saved, is what it basically is saying. In the sight of God. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments. They were not just saved. They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirement of the Lord. And they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now, look, this is this thing's put in here right after the fact he's going to tell us about things chronologically. 
Now, God's aware of human problems. I've, I've, I don't know how many times I've talked to people and offered counsel to people over the years, and it's kind of like God doesn't even know what's going on in my life. Well, He does. <laughs> he most assuredly does. Well, God doesn't like me then. That's not what the book says. For God so loved the world, are you part of the world? Okay, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? He loves you. Okay, let's accept those as a given and work from there. Because that's where, that's where we need to start. Now, <clears throat> here is Zacharias's ministry. It came about while he was performing the priestly service before God and the appointed order of the division. Now, <clears throat> there were a lot of priests. So they developed a rotation, Levitical priests, where individuals would get the opportunity to serve in the temporal temple, but it's usually a once-in-a-lifetime event. So very seldom did they get to go in and out multiple times during the course of their temple service. Now, according to and his big day, Luke 1, 9, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Okay? That's a pretty neat deal. Now, incense burning was symbolic of prayer. Because when they went into the holy place, they burned the incense. The incense went into the holy of holies. And so it is man having access into the heavenlies. And that's what the picture is of the incense burning. Now, <clears throat> uh, prayer in front of the throne of God. Hebrews 4.16, come boldly into the throne of grace that you may receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. And then it says, according to the custom of his priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing right in front of the altar of incense. Now, you would not expect to see somebody <laughs> in there much less appearing to you when you were the only person supposed to go in there. So that's what happened to him. Now, <clears throat> this had to startle him, needless to say. He's in there, he's got all the ingredients, he's getting ready to go, and, and now all of a sudden an angel appears. And Zacharias was troubled. This is the word terrasso. Have you ever been scared so much you shake? Terrasso is all about getting scared so much you shake because it is mean the word means shaken or troubled when he saw him and fear gripped him and the angel said to him do not be afraid may with the present imperative of phobeo fear not stop being afraid whenever you have may with the present imperative it means stop it and this is a clear cut stop it Four times we're going to see that in the course of this uh, this information on the birth of the Messiah. Angels are going to tell people four times, stop it. Don't be afraid. When the Lord shows up, don't be afraid. But it's a normal reaction. And he says, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. So here is Zacharias praying... Okay, and what if an angel showed up during your prayers? 
Here he is. You're ready to burn incense. He's trying to be sure he does everything exactly right. An angel shows up. You get scared to death, and he says, stop it. Okay, don't do this anymore. Would you question him? Would you question the angel? How about Abraham? Didn't Abraham get greeted by an angel? How about Hebrews 13:2 that says that sometimes we've entertained angels unawares. We've been in the presence of one and didn't really know it. But, he says, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at John's birth for he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not Old Testament stuff, is it? Being filled with the Holy Spirit is New Testament things. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was upon people, not filling them. A different base of operation. Same function, different base. And he says, While yet in his mother's womb, this word in is the preposition ek, E-K, which is out of his mother's womb, after he's born. And a lot of times people read that, that John was filled inside of his mother's womb with the Holy Spirit. Not the case. Outside of it. Now, <clears throat> he's going to take the Nazarite vow. He's going to be a reproach among men. He will receive the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is recorded to only being given to a few in history up to this point. Bezalel, one of the workers on the tabernacle, and Joshua were said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are the only two that are said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can bet Zacharias knew this. He knew it. He was a priest. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord, their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. The spirit and power of Elijah, not Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedience to the attitude of the righteous, i.e. like John's mom and dad. This is what it said about them. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Some of our personal problems the Lord chooses to solve. This, this is That's the main principle running through here. Some of our personal problems. He chose to do it for Zacharias and Elizabeth. It was something they cared deeply about. They had prayed about it and prayed about it. And right there when he is in. Giving people the. Getting ready to pray and all that. An angel pops up and says. You've been heard. Okay. Sometimes he chooses to solve. Sometimes we wonder if he'll ever solve anything for us. We want him to fix it all don't we. Fix all of our problems. He says, how are you going to learn endurance? How are you going to learn perseverance? How are you going to win the crown of life if there's nothing to persevere? Huh? I'm giving you a blessing here by letting you go through this. We don't see it that way, do we? But consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. That's a blessing that we have, that we have tests that we need to go through. Now, I've run over a little bit. That's bad. We're going to pick it up here <laughs> next session. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy. And Father, we pray that you indeed will uh, continue to be with us and help us more greatly appreciate what you have 
given to us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.